M&A conversations can be a bit of a vision quest. It can be a total waste of time if you allow it to be. Startups are not get-rich-quick schemes as much as you know some people think they might look like that. And if you are chasing every shiny penny in, in every M&A conversation, it can be a total drag. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, my guest is Austin Ogilvy, a former machine learning product manager who decided to leave his day job to co-found and eventually sell YHAT, a data science and decision management platform, to Altrix, a public company competing in the same space. In our discussion, Austin emphasizes the value of seeking guidance from seasoned CEOs and professionals who have gone through the M&A process in order to structure the right agreements when it came time to sell his business. Austin is a firm believer that whether you're raising money or selling your business, from the first introduction to the investor until the moment the wires hit the bank, fundraising and M&A are journeys requiring bi-directional courtship, storytelling, sales, and detailed organization. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Austin Ogilvy. Austin, thank you so much for being here. I've been excited for our conversation. You know, a fellow founder, a guy that has started a business, sold a business, saw problems that he and his clients were facing. The old one started the next one, you know, going after that problem. I found it amazing and really interesting how your M&A transaction happened. I know we're going to get into that. But I just want to let you know that Mark Cuban had this spot today, and when you were available, I immediately bumped him. So thank you for being here. No, I, I hope you're saying that tongue in cheek. But uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you for reaching out. Super excited to to get to know you, and and big fan of the pod now. So great to be here. Thanks, Austin. So I guess what I really like, right, is you you've gone on this entrepreneurial journey. You had your transaction. Now you're giving back to a lot of founders with kind of startup advice. And for us, we're doing it similarly in really at the exit, right? We found that as our the biggest black box in our entrepreneurial journeys and are trying to give back. So I'd love to hear really the beginnings, like how you started your company and then what led to this kind of M&A transaction. Do you think you can take us back to really when you started the first company? Yeah, sure. So the the quick version is I began my career in a alternative lending company, venture backed company in New York called On Deck Capital, and we were building a number of different data driven sort of underwriting routines that were leveraging what was then very you know cutting edge machine learning techniques. Decisions abound in in lending, like risk scores and pricing algorithms and all the rest. So there's a lot of ML that we were baking into, you know, iPhone apps and the web app, et cetera. And we were inspired by a lot of the problems that we had to overcome to productize those machine learning routines, me and another product manager at On Deck. And we left in 2013 to build a data science company that was going to provide contemporary data scientists using open source tools in particular, which you know, R and Python were uh, having a sort of rejuvenation moment. Dramatic popularization in the academy led to lots of quantitative research being done in those languages uh, and replacing SAS and MATLAB, these like very expensive commercial quant tools from sort of yesteryear. So we built this data science company for 
you know, depending on when you push the start button, approximately four and a half years, we raised some VC money, we did Y Combinator, and we were probably a million and a half or so in revenue. And we were out for our Series A. We had secured a Series A term sheet and got approached by another player in the same space. There were probably about a half dozen data science companies founded between 2012 and 2014 that you could call direct head-to-head competitors. And one, we all knew each other. You know, we're all at the same yep. events. We're all obsessed with the same technologies. So you know, while we're bitter rivals on the front lines, at the same time, we sort of all are kind of friends with one another. And sure. the CEO of one of these competitors approached us I think he had gotten wind of the fact that we were out in market, you know, the rumor mill on Sand Hill Road and beyond is is a real thing. And he was interested in our technology. And so he sent us a term sheet. I'm happy to answer, you know, whatever questions you might have. But that's sort of the lead up anyways to to how it got done. Yeah, thank you for taking me back. I guess I understood about half of what you said. You're clearly the smarter one on this call. It feels like everything we're hearing about machine learning these days, you were at least a decade ahead and probably why there were only a few competitors. I think it makes a lot of sense to know your competitors right in in the space and have potentially open dialogue. Like you said, you're on the battlefield, right? So you're not going to share everything. But it sounds like in the middle of raising capital, you at least had enough of a relationship that you were open to these types of conversations. Yeah, I mean, like uh, on that point, I'll just say, like, I'm not one to ever knock the competition, especially at the early stage. Like, obviously, we need to yeah. fight and destroy if we can. On the other hand, if, if you think about it, your competitors, they represent your customers too, right? And if you, presumably, you, you love your customers, you bet your career, quit your job to go work on problems that serve your customers, well, uh, you know, be kind and compassionate to the others in the space that are doing the same. That's one point. Second point is, is very unlikely that you're the only smart and creative team on planet Earth that's worrying about a particular problem, if it's any good. Uh, There will be others. And especially when you're helping contribute towards a new category definition, which, you know, at the time in the data science world, we, I feel as though we were, and certainly now with my current company, I I feel as though we are, you know, there are others that are pushing the, the industry forward and helping shape it. So, I mean, definitely fight and win. But yeah, I think it's very wise to not be weird to your competitors. Yeah. So you're out raising capital because you're what you're doing about a million and a half in revenue at this point. Is that correct? Yep. And so you've sent out, you know, investor decks. You're having conversations with the likely suspects. Were, were any of these your the same seed investors that you had initially? Yeah. So all of our seed investors were interested to take, you know, their pro rata or more. But as is very common, they VCs love to have another come in and price it. They also, you know, new money, new blood that can take the company to the next step. So like we were out there mainly talking to new investors. Yeah. And it seems to me like I've read a lot of your blog posts around this idea of like good VC behavior. It seems to me that this is kind of uncanny timing to be in the middle of fundraising and have a competitor who likely all investors that are investing in your space know the competitive set, right? They, they know who's who. And to get outreach for a bid to buy the business. Uh, well, however that happened, right? I think it's remarkable, but also remarkable to be open to that 
conversation, right? Because we get a mindset of like capital raising to grow and merging with a competitor is also, it's a similar mindset in that you're probably saying, hey, one plus one equals three here. We have a similar mission and we want to grow together. Is that how you, how you really thought about it? Because it's a shift, right? From raising capital to selling a business. Yeah, so totally. So the first term sheet that we had was a very straightforward series A term sheet. Then when we got approached by the competitor, that's precisely how we viewed it. We basically said like, all right, how much dilution are we going to take if we take the the series A path? And how much capital does it give us? What is the sort of R&D that we could tackle with that amount of cash? And what is the the go-to market sort of objective or milestone that we think we could really hit? And we played the same game looking over here at the M&A term sheet. We were at, at the end of the day, like contemplating trading risky Y hat stock for risky competitor stock. And, you know, they were very much interested in our technology. They had some big monster enterprise contracts that, you know, the CEO of this company had far more experience than we did at the time with getting in with bigger companies and taking our products, which were considerably further along than the other company, the, the buyer, into the hands of a very talented sales team was a, an interesting idea, but neither was going to provide liquidity. I mean, both were considered sort of how much do we think path A or B will allow us to win the category and advance the sort of dream. And obviously that was incorporated many conversations with, we didn't have a board at the time, it was just me and my co-founder, but we had major safe holders that we leaned on and had lots of conversations with them, we met the board of the other company and you know got into it with them. At the end, we liked the the joint forces. You know, there's yep. a half dozen of these companies. Like, let's team up. Felt like the right move at the time. Now, of course, we haven't even gotten to the punchline here, which is we signed that M and A term sheet, uh, but we didn't actually close it. <laughs> there was sort of a, a wild card, which I can throw in the company Please. that we actually sold to it was we had had. Months earlier, before we went out for our A, we'd had a couple of conversations with uh, another far bigger company. At the time, we met them. They were still private. They had kind of gone ghost a little bit. And they had debuted their IPO around you know, the same time that we went out for our Series A. They came back to the table with another term sheet, 43 days into a 45-day closing period with the competitor that we yep. had you know, signed on for. And so we had obviously this new term sheet, we disclosed, we, it was a whole thing. You know, We had already negotiated the merger agreement. We'd already done all of the post-term sheet diligence with the other buyer. And the, the deal that we actually closed was the second company, which is called Altrix. It's a pub- publicly traded company in the data science space. And I'm happy to tell you about, about any yeah, of that. Yeah, I mean, okay. So really interesting because is it Altrix? Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. So Altrix, being a public company at the time, I could kind of understand how there was interest before they went public. Then there's this period of time where they go silent, right? They've got to focus on going public. And now they're coming back and saying, hey, there's a company out there that could be really valuable to us. And spinning up that conversation must have been pretty interesting because I'm guessing that the terms would be very different. Did you get cash out of that deal as opposed to just kind of sharing in, I don't know, equally risky stock like you were with the competitor? How, how were the structures different? It was a considerably different structure. Yeah. It was a one-third cash, two-thirds stock deal. Yeah. Obviously, like 
there was major interest from our safe holders in liquidity. It was commercially quite a good deal for us. And, you know, we really liked the idea. At first, what got us excited about going down the let's merge with the competitor path had a mm-hmm. lot to do with seeing, being able to imagine without squinting too hard our products in the hands of talented sellers. Well, Altrix, one of the best enterprise sales teams in the market yeah. right now. Like they're just an unbelievably good sales team. And, you know, they have, I don't know how much you know about Altrix, but they're sort of, they have a lot of products, but their flagship is a desktop app, sort of drag and drop machine learning and data cleansing kind of tools. Like imagine Excel on steroids or like Python simplified a little bit in a visual mm-hmm. way. It's a Mm -hmm. very unique product. There isn't many or aren't many quite like it. But Altrix, part of the reason they were going public was they saw the opportunity to expand and serve data professionals, not just the many tens or hundreds of thousands that they already had been serving in the sort of business analyst kind of uh, arena, but this new emerging class of, of data professionals working with programming languages, namely, again, Python and R, and that was a huge opportunity. Obviously, it was the one that we saw in 2013 when we first got started. And it was one that they were very interested in investing in. So they're also very, very committed to like hackathon culture. And that's actually how we met them before we were out for our A. A bunch of their product people and engineers had asked us for access to our software that they could use for free in oh, wow. a hackathon. And that we spent a lot of time. We just thought this was this is great fun to help these cool engineers build something for a hackathon. And you know, one meeting, it just so happened that the chief scientist and the chief strategy officer were on the call. Which you know, you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand. You know, a hackathon conversation just became another kind of conversation when the C-suite joins the call. Right? That's how the conversation started. And then they went ghost. Then they debuted their IPO. Now we're holding these two term sheets, one for the Series A, one for a merger with a competitor. And then they sent over their, you know, just landed in my inbox one day from the CEO of Altrix term sheet. So, I I mean, I have so many questions. This is a great story. Did you have anyone aside from investors, right? The safe holders helping you evaluate this or even taking you to negotiate with the potential buyers, acquirers? So one of the strongest recommendations I can give any founder is go get angel investors, CEOs and CTOs who have solved problems that you are very likely to solve or encounter. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they built a company that serves your same customer profile. They ran a, a similar go-to-market uh, motion that you anticipate you're going to run. They've solved technical problems that you need to deal with. They've hired teams that you need to hire. All of that stuff is, the, the pattern recognition is massively valuable. And certainly among our angel investors, there were a handful that had gone through different types of M&As, both, you know, stock for stock, as well as, you know, bigger company buying them out and PE roll-ups and like all kinds of stuff now. Sure. But it, it's, it's no different than any of the other reasons to take great angel investors investment in the beginning. Like you just haven't seen every movie in the world. And if you surround yourself with people who really like movies and have seen a lot, it turns out that it's quite useful. And this is just one of many of those patterns. 
Yeah, that's a great answer. I actually have read quite a bit about your network and how you promote this idea like of building CEO networks so you can really rely on each other. I know even as an investor, uh, both you and I right, will look at investing in groups that might be able to leverage each other. And that's been an interesting journey for me. Okay, so so maybe let's jump into the bi-directional due diligence that you have talked about, right? So on that first potential joining of an, a competitor, you are doing the exact due diligence that they are doing on you. But then when you go to sell to a public company, you're going to want to do something similar, right? It's probably not as in-depth. A lot of their information is public, but you are rolling or investing two-thirds of this you know, term sheet, of this outcome back into that public company for public stock, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe can you talk to me about that reverse due diligence process and you know, what, maybe what you learned or things that you wish you had done differently? Yeah, sure. So before we, we leave the advisor, who is advising yeah, sure. Uh, sure. Uh, question behind, uh, also great counsel. I'm a huge proponent of the art of thrift in startups. Like not mm -hmm. blowing your budgets on stupid things is a great yep. idea, but you should go get the best attorney like every time. They are tremendous value. And, you know, paying those fancy tall building attorney fees is no fun when you're small. Well, at the end, it really, really is consequential. And they helped a lot in this, right? We contemplating a Series A term sheet, contemplating an M&A with a competitor term sheet, understanding the, you know, how to evaluate those from like post-closing kind of capitalization perspective. It's quite complicated. They, we have to understand what both companies look like both before and then the pro forma after and understand like what is the actual deal commercially and then they were the ones to flag like okay we're going to negotiate really hard for everything that they're going to ask of you in the you know moment you sign there was a 45 day closing period in which there's a no shop so we can't talk to any other suitors yep. and during that time the lawyers go to work drafting and then negotiating the full merger agreement and during that time, definitely in, in every M&A context, the buyer is going to be looking carefully at, at the target. Well, in, in the case of two startups, uh, you know, it really is a merger technically on paper. One does buy the other, but really it's a merger in the truest sense of the word. It's important for both companies to due diligence one another. You know, how much cash is left in the bank this is a conversation I have verbally with the CEO, you know. Do you have a lot of debt? What is your revenue? Who are your customers? How long are the contracts? Like all of those questions matter to us, the target, you know, as much as it, those questions matter to them, the buyer. And For it's sure. just a little bit of a different situation when, you know, it's all tricks publicly traded. You know, you can look at stuff online. The, the types of risks are way more similar for both participants in the merger context than it is in, in the latter. You know, uh, let me go back because you gave great advice on the attorney. You know, with us, we're dealing with M&A attorneys. Those are very specific skill set. And we're always telling people, do not use your family attorney for an M&A totally. transaction. But I think with in your situation, going out to other CEOs who have raised capital, finding the right attorney that really understands that landscape probably has a pretty good understanding of what M&A possibilities look like 
like and can help you through that due diligence, can help you structure you know, those term sheets and eventual purchase agreements or merger agreements. So yeah, I echo exactly what you said, that having the right counsel, it can really make an enormous difference. And sometimes, yes, the bills are enormous, but, you know, ask your fellow founders who they've used in the past and who they like and who's, you know, delivered great, great. I mean, uh, they all sit, all those guys uh, and gals, they sit across from one another every day. And if you show up with, a great main street lawyer, you all have your lunch eaten a hundred percent. They like, yep. they'll just negotiate circles around random things. Like I, I had never even heard of Knowles net operating losses that yep. added like a million bucks to the purchase price. Like it's I would amazing, have never right? known this. Right. And there's a million examples like this. Now for our audience, NOLs are net operating losses and sellers can include them in M&A transactions and negotiate real consideration for them. But the IRS limits how acquirers can carry these forward. Many circumstances, this is to reduce taxable income, but a lot of it gets written down. So uh, we're not tax professionals here, but we certainly work with uh, net operating losses and and can get real value for them. But it's definitely something that you should talk to your uh, tax attorney or accountant about. Okay, so you're doing this kind of bi-directional due diligence. You're with the public company, it's a little bit easier. You're getting a third of the cash, two thirds is in this equity. And you're using an attorney to get this deal done, at least to negotiate the, the oh, purchase agreement. The same legal it's crazy. The same legal yep. team. We we work with the same partner now at my my current company, although he left Cooley and now is as he's a good one. But back then the Cooley team had literally just done a full soup to nuts series A pre-term sheet, term sheet red line, followed by a term sheet from the competitor and the entire merger agreement. And then uh, here we bring them a new term sheet followed by a 30-day closing process where they have to do it all again. It was, I didn't sleep a lot for a while. Yep. It is, it's a really difficult, time-consuming and stressful process. We've put together a timeline of what it takes to get an M&A transaction done, all the different processes, but we also attach the amount of time that it takes. It's not that it's difficult, but every little step takes an inordinate amount of time. And then on top of that, we've tried to map the stress level on you <laughs> as, as the founder running this process. And it's just remarkable what it takes to get through an M&A transaction. And that's why we're such proponents of building great M&A teams that will take a lot of that load off of you. But no matter who you have on the team, it, it's, a, it's a stressful process for sure. Yeah. One thing that you can do, and you should be doing either way, and a great legal team will help you do this, is keep like a, a solid company binder with all of mm-hmm. the key stuff. Like every employee should be signing whatever the employment agreement is, all the material contracts, both the ones that you have your customers sign and the, the ones that you sign for vendors that you use, like all of that stuff. Be really, really disciplined and like ped- almost pedantic with the, your, your like level of organization because that will dramatically expedite not everything in the M&A process, but like quite a lot of it is just sanity checking everything that sort of matters from a, a contract's perspective. Like, you know, the, both sides in the case of the competitor deal, like we were reviewing everything that they had signed. We didn't do that for all tricks. Uh, it was unnecessary, but certainly having your ducks in a row 
is going to be very helpful in any exit. It's, it's worth doing. All right. So I, one, I think it, it's amazing that you were open to an M&A conversation, multiple, right? While you're raising money, you're obviously, the company is growing and you really believe in the future, but you've decided you sold to Altrix and now you're on the other side, right? You're working for them. You have a job, you are an employee. And, and I think you spent at least a year there. Is that correct? Yeah, I stayed a year and my co-founder Greg stayed for a couple years. A lot of the team stayed for quite a while afterwards. Okay. So kind of all over the place. And when you invested two thirds of the, the compensation back into the company, how has that turned out? Was it an earnout? Did they hit, have to hit certain metrics or your product sell in a certain way? How did that work? No. So the when I say one third cash, two thirds stock, that's the purchase price, the merger, like the total consideration. There was retention on top of that for certain employees, but no, uh, the the deal. I don't. You'd have to ask lawyers or tax people, but the if you do it as a reverse double triangle merger, I think it's called. There's mm. some tax free sort of write off that the buyer can do if it's no more than one third cash. And obviously, like, we all wanted the stock. I mean, we wanted the cash uh, in part because, you know, startups don't pay very well. And that, that was nice. But we quite liked the Altrix upside, right? Uh, and certainly that did really well uh, after the fact, too. So that, that was nice. That's awesome. All right. So you spend a year, and but you're off to starting another company. What was the impetus to, to making the jump to starting your next thing? Yeah, I mean, so the year at Altrix was was awesome. I mean, we the first six months was integrating the product, putting the team and technology into the fight. You know, we had built and rebuilt our core flagship product at like at least three or four times while we were, you know, uh, before the M and A. So we uh, because we you build it wrong, you know, the first time and for several mm-hmm. times. Uh, each time you sort of learn uh, how to how to do it better and. Altrix had a totally different, you know, set of, of programming languages and tools. And just, like the fastest way to integrate it was like, let's just do a, a full rewrite. And so that was, you know, whatever number of months, right when we sort of got there. And then the next six months was training all the sellers all over, you know, uh, five, 600 sellers all over worldwide. And that was a thrill, you know, mm-hmm. seeing my product go into, you know, million dollar contracts like that. Uh, we, we couldn't have bribed our way into some of these sales opportunities with all of the VC money <laughs> before. I'm like, that was amazing yeah. and learned quite a lot. But at the end of the day, I was really itching to get back to something early stage. And, uh, you know, I also, I was tired. Uh, I took some time off. Uh, I took like six months to travel, just sort of decompress. And then, yeah, got going on a new, on a new company. So I usually ask people when you had that transaction, right? As soon as it was finished, was there somebody that you called or celebrated with? Yeah. Oh gosh. I'm glad you asked. This was hilarious. So Greg, my, my co-founder, my co-founder and I, we had just been through all of these uh, several deals in a row, basically. And we're getting to the end and we got an email from the lawyers that said, can I have permission to release your signature? Something like this. And I, I got a, I got a text from Greg. We weren't sitting next to each other. He, I think I forget where he was, but he texted me. Lawyers just asked if they can release my sig. Does that mean it's over? And I wrote <laughs> back, I don't know. I think it's over, but I'm not <laughs> sure. 
And then he wrote, do me a favor. Don't call me at least for three days. Buy a flight to Nashville. Meet me there on Wednesday. And I wrote back question mark. No response. (laughs) So I was like, all right, he wants some space and he wants me to go to Nashville. Okay. So I buy a ticket. No idea why I'm going to Nashville. I text him, you know, here's my flight info. I'll be there tomorrow or whenever the day before the flight. And I land and he's waiting. He's waiting for me at the airport. Uh, And he's like, get in, get in the car. I'm like, where, what am I doing in Nashville? Why are we here? He's like, just get in the car. I'm like, okay. We're driving largely in silence, listening to country music. And uh, we, he, he drives us into the Gulch, so like downtown Nashville. And we are like parked right in front of Lou Casey, which is a cowboy boots company. We walk right inside and he's like, we're buying some cowboy boots today and really nice ones. <laughs> and the guy's <laughs> like, okay. He's like, you want whiskeys or... Greg's like, I'll have a Budweiser. And then we, yeah. we each bought some nice cowboy boots. That is awesome because I the the next question isn't who you call but like how did you celebrate and for you to jump on a flight right and just trust right that's the trust you have to have with your co-founders right that is such a great story Austin thanks cool. for sharing that all right so you've got the itch you're gonna go start the next company I know you had first name now it's Thorough Pass can you tell us a little bit about you know the business you're running today. Yeah. So the company is called Thorough Pass. You can check us out, T-H-O-R-O-P-A-S-S.com. We are an IT audit and digital compliance platform. So essentially, we help predominantly software companies meet the ever-growing list of security and privacy standards uh, and get audited under them. So for instance, if you're familiar with SOC 2, this is a family of audit reports that has become overwhelmingly popular in the United States enterprises that do business with software companies usually insist on software companies undergoing a SOC audit every year, if not more. And there's many, you know, ISO 27000 star is another sort of family of audits that's probably the most popular internationally. High trust is very popular and relied upon if you're holding, you know, health data, a lot of the big pharma companies and hospitals, etc. will all insist that vendors undergo all kinds of different audits like this. And we are a one-stop shop for you to come and manage your day-to-day digital compliance. And then when the time comes to get audited, which again is routine, cyclical, every year sort of thing, we provide that turnkey uh, on the platform. So if you need help with compliance or need some of these audits, give me a shout. Check out ThoroughPass. You know, again, right? You, you're saying things that are like a decade ahead. You probably have a handful of competitors, but you're in a space where this is like a must-have. It isn't like a luxury, right, for your clients. So amazing, amazing that uh, your next company. I guess I think this one is likely to be even bigger than the last. Austin, is there anything else, just because we focus so much on M&A and you had a really, I think, unique experience, and I would say we have clients where private equity firms are trying to merge two competitors, right? They go out and buy one and then now we're going to go out and buy competitors and they, and they merge them together. So that part's not unique. But to be in the middle of a fundraise and then have a merger opportunity and then an acquisition opportunity and just be open to all of these possibilities, I think is remarkable. Is there any advice that you would like to leave us with or leave our fellow founders with having to do with that M&A process? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm torn because a lot of the advice that I've been given and that I agree with, I think it's good advice. It's like M and A conversations can be a bit of a vision quest. It can be a total waste of time if you allow it to be. Startups are not get rich quick schemes as much as you know some people right. think they might look like that. And if you are chasing every shiny penny in in every M and A conversation, it can be a total drag. On the other hand. There is such a thing uh, as picking your head up to understand the options. Like Options are good. Uh, I don't care if you don't like a particular option. Having it is better than not having it. And so you know, having a few conversations here and there, at least being thoughtful once in a while, you know, I don't know what the cadence, every quarter maybe, you make a list of plausible companies that could be interesting targets if you're getting big enough to buy plausible buyers that would be interesting you know, compliments or that you would compliment them, you know, if you have close partnerships and you're doing co-selling, you know, wrapper products that dovetail nicely with your own, like, yeah, it is a good idea to be a little bit out there and be open. And one way to do that with truly big companies, the ones that have corp dev teams, get them in as investors. I mean, this is not how it happened with us and Altrix, but it easily could have had we been smart enough and aware enough, uh, we, we could have been more deliberate. To a certain extent, we got a little lucky. It just fell into place by accident, and it could have totally never happened. But you can make a list of companies that have corp dev teams. And when you're out there raising, don't have them lead it. They're usually very slow, and they don't write big enough checks. There's all kinds of hairs in the deal. But mm-hmm. they do invest, even the publicly traded ones. And, you know, it is, we could go far deeper down this rabbit hole. There's a lot to say here, but yeah, like it's a great way to advice. drum up an M and A offer is by just asking them to participate in a VC round. And like worst case, they pass. A best case, they buy you. And medium case, you have a great additional investor on the cap table as part of the round. Even the ones that pass, right now you're on the radar. And I think that that's an important first step to having those future M&A conversations. So yeah, I think that's great advice. Let me ask you, after having this exit, the first one, did it make it any easier for you to raise capital or just kind of general awareness? What advantages do you think you have now as an entrepreneur having had an exit under your belt? I mean, considerable. Doors definitely open. It was easier to fundraise 100%. Yeah, I'm I'm extremely grateful for having had the exit. Yeah. Obviously like the financials, but far more than that, just the whole thing. It was enlightening and, you know, humbling. And, you know, I got to meet a lot of people who have been tremendously helpful along the way. And that's great. Austin, I really I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for for spending this hour with us. I learned a ton. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Great talk. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out Podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.